0: The college experience is problematic in America. Students and their families are frequently going into debt to pay exorbitant tuition rates for an experience that's supposed to prepare them for the workplace. Yet for many, that system seems to be getting increasingly out of touch. The job market is changing, the world's more competitive. And at the end of the day, do naturally imaginative kids growing up really want to be told that they have to be a corporate drone if they hope to be successful in the quote-unquote real world? Well, that's an especially big conversation from where I'm recording and currently attending college as a freshman, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. We're an old and traditional university often defined by our obsession with being founded by Thomas Jefferson and being forged in a model of high-minded academic ideals and traditions which continue to this very day. It's not campus, it's grounds here. And I'm not supposed to call myself a freshman, but a first year. Well, that picture I just painted isn't 100% accurate. In fact, I think our school and its environment gets generalized a lot. I'm Max Patton, and as a UVA student, I wanna tell a different narrative that I see emerging. I want to tell the stories of students and graduates here at the University of Virginia who aren't following the path you'd expect. This is Whose Shoulders, a podcast that, true to its rhetorical name, will start to ask whose shoulders that these innovative students are really standing on. Legacy and tradition may be a big part of UVA, but they don't necessarily define everyone who goes here. So let's talk about the people who are changing their future. Today, I'm excited to talk to Tarek Partu, a UVA alum who has worked as an entrepreneur establishing several projects, who's currently working as the chief creative officer for Uncubed, a hiring platform which connects creative workers to large employers of many stripes, from established titans like IBM and Adobe to still growing media outlets like BuzzFeed. Oh, and he also made an adult soccer league in New York with over 3,000 players. So let's find out how he used a talent for connecting people to get to where he is today.
1: Uh, my name is Tarek Pertou. I am, amongst other things, the chief creative officer of a New York-based company called Uncubed. I also founded a New York-based uh, soccer, adult soccer league called NYC Footy that if you're in New York and you play soccer, you'll, you'll be familiar with. But um, I live in brooklyn live in brooklyn heights with my wife and my daughter kalila we've been here for about 10 years
0: okay cool so that's kind of the outline of where you are now but i'd like to just kind of go chronologically uh so let's just start with you growing up what did you think you were going to do when you were growing up there is
1: a video of me i think i'm 7 and i'm telling my mother i was there's for the for the listeners out there that are max maybe your age or younger you might not be familiar with a company called blockbuster but um it was all the rage back in the eighties, I guess and early nineties and i and they used to do this really interesting thing where they'd bring families in and for free film kids, you know just saying what they want to do with their life and i you know i I told the world that I wanted to be a professional miniature golf player, and that's where I began my career aspirations didn't go anywhere I wasn't great then, and i I'm not great now, but uh I didn't realize there wasn't even that profession should be um but as yeah. I, but that that you know I don't think that you know I think that that's just obviously just for fun but um you know my career aspirations it was tough to say when they developed because i was always very interested in everything i played every sport i couldn't just stick to one i wanted to, i wanted to take every single class you know i i definitely the the jack of all trade personality and i, I won't fight it and um yeah, i wanted to be marine biologist in high school i didn't know even know what that was to be honest i just loved dolphins sounded <laughs> <laughs> like that would be good fair enough i was great in math you know, that was like my specialty subject. And then I got to UVA and then was was uh, pretty uh, subsequently quite bad at math, at least compared to the standards of those around me. And
0: and just for context, can you kind of like establish the environment in the, in the place you were growing up in before UVA?
1: My father worked at a company called Raytheon, which um, was a U.S. defense contractor. So they had offices everywhere and he was. Um, you know, he was sent to different offices and we would go with him and, and I was born in Massachusetts. And then a couple of years later moved to Tennessee. That's where my childhood, uh, most of my childhood memories are. But after my parents divorced, um, a couple of years later, I moved with my mother to New York, Long Island. That's where she grew up. And so I did middle school and high school in Long Island. My brother who stuck around with my dad for a bit, uh, ended up joining us later on. And, and, um, and that kind of, that kind of, rounds out my high school years um where again i didn't really know what i i wanted to do i was a great student i i was look i i bought in hook line and sinker into the public education system i was the valedictorian at at my uh at my high school gave the old speech went to uva got great grades all this stuff and um you know for for those out there would i encourage my daughter to take the same path absolutely not i think that doesn't at all take you down the path that ultimately fills your you know, fulfills your passions at all. If you just, you know, kind of blindly go down the path that is presented in front of you and do it really well and do what everybody tells you to do well, that's kind of what I did. And so I, I, I had a tough time identifying from a career standpoint what I was going to be because I was just doing what I was told very well and very effectively. And that ultimately puts you probably into a typical corporate job, which is what it mm-hmm. did uh, early on. And it was only in my mid-20s where I think I started to wake up a bit. Um, and start to say, look, I really want to pursue something else in life.
0: Mm-hmm. But why did you think you were so good at that, like following the rules? And I mean, you, you were going up and down the East Coast. You know, it sounds like you had like, you know, a you know, pretty interesting experience uh, in your childhood. Why do you think you were, you know, so, you know, trying out all of these sports, doing well in school? I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon, but it's definitely not everybody. What, what do you think was making you just so focused on that kind of, you know, the correct path?
1: I think what it was is I'm a very competitive person, so I think the reason I, I performed really well in school is, was less because I was interested in classes, which is to say I wasn't interested in any of them, uh, hence the reason I don't remember anything I learned, but it was I was very competitive, and I was competitive in everything, and I happened, my, that competitiveness was most, its most successful outlet was studies. That's where I was outperforming others when I put in the work. When I put in the work in soccer and baseball and others, I wasn't necessarily outperforming others, but in studies I was. Um, But I was too young to um, even consider that I could go on a rogue path entirely. Uh, I wasn't really an artist. I wasn't a musician. I wasn't raised by artists or musicians. My father emigrated from Egypt to the US, and he really emigrated here to prove uh, to his family, that he would make something of himself and America, you know, from the perspective of a foreigner at the time, certainly those in Egypt was, you know, a place where you, your hard work and getting a full-time job at a big company offered you a very nice lifestyle. And I was conditioned in that by my father, uh, my mom, who was a struggling lower middle class woman. And and that was the majority of my life is my, I feel. I feel as if I grew up in a lower middle class environment because I grew up with my mother. And that gave me a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, I think, when you grow up that way and it's a, to a hardworking woman and, and you start to see some of the irregularities in life. Um, you develop little chips on your shoulder and you you start fighting uh, harder to prove your worth. Um and maybe you go in different paths. You know, part of me wishes I would have fought the system more than um dove right into the system and then and then um, you know, and then perform so well in that system, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you kind of had like conflicting pressures, and you're not entirely sure why, but you did end up, you know, in this path, I'm guessing through high school, on that path of, you know, the, the traditional path to success, and just doing well in school, doing all of those things, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: And then, and then over the years, I'm 37 now, but over the years, I really began to resent that part of the world a whole lot.
0: What made you decide to go to UVA, though? Uh, coming from, I guess you would be in New York at that point. At the time, the school I was most in love with was
1: Georgetown, but I didn't get in. I got into UVA, and uh, I again, this this is will won't be a surprise to listeners having heard what I said about just again going hook, line, and sinker into into what uh, you know again what this world suggests we should go hook, line, and sinker into. I just. I just went to the the best school I got into, so I got into a right. you know a few colleges, and I was like, well, I'm going there. It's the best one. Surely mm-hmm. that's my my best chance of happiness.
0: <laughs> so the like factor is like, okay, Charlottesville, it's kind of cute. It's not the urban environment I've known. Those were you know nice, but the main thing was like, this is the best school I've gotten into.
1: Far and away the main thing. In fact, the only thing I really remember about UVA visiting it was was the lawn and thinking that's a hell of a fairway if you had a driver
0: and a golf ball. <laughs> Back to the mini golf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Golf has stuck with me, I suppose,
1: and I'm a terrible <laughs> golfer. In fact, I I can't watch it, nor can I play it. But yeah, it's it's rising
0: and its, it's theme in my life, I guess. It's your first year at UVA. What was that like?
1: It was a little, was a little ominous to begin with because uh, I was my mother was dropping me off for my basically my first day, not first day of classes, but first day. It's first day for the rest of my life, if you will. And I had learned just hours before while driving that. One of my closest friends from high school had died in a car accident the night before. Mm. And so that, that, um, that's just a weird way to start anything. It's a weird way when you're at a major, I mean, that, you know the, the day you get dropped off to a university that you're staying at is a major transition point in your life, obviously, while you ask the question. So it's just a weird, weird thing to discover on that exact same day that someone close to you died. So that, that's weird. And that's you know, stayed with me the, my whole life. Um, but I do remember, I just do remember a very, very friendly vibe, um, but a very different vibe. And that's what I think was so attractive. UVA was just such a different way of life from what I was used to. I mean, most, when I first got to UVA, man, I, I was looked at as like a Long Island meathead. You know, I, I had a Long Island accent. I wore like tight black shirt, t-shirts. Mm-hmm. i had earrings in both of my ears you know i had spiky hair <laughs> right you know that was that that i'm surprised uva even accepted me <laughs> when i think about it I look was back. it still the
0: stage where they were asking for uh photos on the application
1: <laughs> it might have been um i was sharing a photo of me with a giant wig and like a blacked out tooth and that's the photo I shared on my application. Probably why I didn't get to Georgetown. I, that's the, <laughs> the photo I gave them actually. My mother. I mean, it's
0: her. weird to think that schools were still doing that it is in first place. Yeah. It
1: is so weird to think that now, but that that is what they did. And I remember I gave them like, "You want to? You want a picture? This is the one you're getting." And it was, it was. Uh, I was wearing this. I look like you know. I look like, not like Frank Zappa, basically. And um, you know, I I was condi- I can get I'm easily conditioned into the culture that I'm in. Um, certainly before I had the self awareness to realize it, and so I changed very quickly. <laughs> but yeah, early on, I was, you know, I think the first question I asked one of my doormates was if they wanted to, if they worked out. I'm serious. I can't make that up. <laughs> like, do you work out?
0: I think was like one of the first questions I had. was. That just like what you thought people like how people would talk in college or yeah, just... I,
1: I I you know I'm I'm. I, uh, shockingly, I, um, shockingly to people that really know me, I actually tested as an introvert. And so maybe, maybe it's just an introvert's way of trying to project conversation somewhat unnaturally. And I, I, you know, didn't, I'm pretty good at understanding social cues, but I saw a fella in the dorm that looked pretty fit. And I, you know, I was pretty heavily into working out at the time and said, well, you know, we have to bond my brain at least went into that right that, i mean you yeah like finding friends yeah who are you going to relate to i work out does this person work out you know right when you add the context it sounds like a totally normal thing to do it just something mm-hmm. it's just been rightfully so um made fun of in the public sector for white quite some time
0: You know, you had that, um, you know, the unfortunate, you know, thing you found out uh, while you were still going, like, you know, on the way to UVA in the back of your mind, was that also just coloring how, you know, you were kind of finding new friends and finding a new community like in the first few days?
1: I think so. Um, Yeah, I didn't know anybody. I mean, Long Island did an interesting thing where they, they got people that were going to UVA together at someone's house in Long Island beforehand. And there was like 18 of us, not many people from Long Island ended up at UVA. So th- th- those are the people I, I met and a couple of them. Um, you know, I would spend time with early at, at UVA but by early, I mean, like the first 10 days, and then you make friends so quickly. But right. I was great at making friends. I really was I mean, I, I was not a mean person, I, I was very interested in people. And, um, you know, I asked a lot of questions, and you quickly you quickly start to see who's funny, who, who shares your sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um and I was able to spot that relatively quickly, and there was one fella in my dorm who I got along with really well and uh, you know he's still a close friend of mine today he's probably i have two friends that were in my actual suite that are still very close friends of mine today actually
0: so in your first like in the beginning of your college career, what did you you know think you were going to end up majoring, and where do you think you were going to end up working like how was that working out
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't I didn't have a thought about w- where I would work i mean I remember thinking um you know, like sport like a, being a sports agent I thought would be really interesting. I was into sports, still am. Um later I thought I would go into advertising. I went on an advertising agency trip and thought that would be interesting. Uh but I didn't have a plan, Max. I didn't. I mean, I just didn't um I to this day I don't have plans. Planning is never something uh it's just not who I am for, for you know, for it's probably frustrated people in my life, but it's I've never been a planner. And um and so I just kind of just kind of went in whatever direction I think I was pulled in. So the early classes I took, I mean, you had certain prereqs. So I did sign up for all the prerequisites. And I asked people, like, what classes are you taking? I took a lot of classes because other people took the classes. Mm -hmm. And then there was, I don't remember everything, but I do remember quickly going into pre-com.
0: Right, which is kind of like the business track at UVA. I went
1: to the business track. And again, it was because like a lot of my friends were doing it. And it felt like my personality would 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 conduct itself well there I had a decent decent brain for it uh, I was interested in a variety of different subjects the business school would allow for that I didn't have to go narrow and deep on any particular subject like I was never going to I was never going to be an english major I was never going to be a mathematics major but business was so broad and it appealed to me because you could do a bunch of different things my mother was in it like combined those right so i understood that my father was in finance so that you know i had again i already had that con- professional conditioning from seeing the careers of my parents so Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be an accountant, and I, I, I actually was just not well suited for finance. But marketing was was the early thing that caught my brain, and then eventually international business and others. Once I got into the comp school, but you know, I don't know. I don't think there's any point in college. I, I, I knew there was no point in college. I, I pursued what I wanted to pursue because I didn't know what I wanted to pursue. School. Um, I don't know if this is a UVA sanctioned podcast, but I don't think colleges do a great job <laughs> of of preparing people for careers that they want. I think they do a good job of preparing you into careers that helps- That they can
0: get. You yeah. can get,
1: or that, that's gonna ultimately make the school money. And all these companies invest so much money at UVA, the school needs to invest in getting those kids into those companies. That doesn't mean kids will be happy. So when you're in the comm school, you know you start interviewing with like KPMG and these other companies, which I did. And I hated the interviews. I wasn't good at them. I performed the best in like marketing type companies like Procter Gamble and Gamble and those sorts that at the time were coming to school. I ended up getting a job at a company called Hex, which was part of a larger company called the May Company, which owned a, b- a bunch of large retail stores across the country. And um, and it was the most like, I don't know, again, it was one of the most broad roles I could find myself in. And that's why I ended mm. up there. I, but I also was being conditioned in like salary. I mean, UVA also does a good
0: job of like making sure everyone knows what the average salary is. And so you still- right. right. I mean, and that's part of the reason why the, you know, comm school at UVA is so revered by a lot of people. Yeah.
1: it's exactly right. Yeah. And I think, um you know, I, I, I just think, you know, you get that salary number in your head. I remember going on a, UVA used to do this trip where they take you around different advertising companies like McCann Erickson and Ogilvy and such. I remember asking one fellow, like, you know how long does it take to make six figures? This must have been in two thousand three or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and the guy looked at me like, "Dude, you got a lot to learn about life." I remember that, day, <laughs> and he's so right. And it was just like we we were so conditioned in that they were everyone constantly was talking about salaries. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we I'm, you know, I'm not now I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm blaming that environment, but you know we need to take our own ownership for our own careers, obviously. But that was what was going through my brain, which was how can I make a decent amount of money and not be in finance.
0: I mean, I don't know what it was like back then, but I think now, like, you know, th- there's definitely a reputation to kids who are doing pre-com. It's like this stereotype of, you know, being salary minded and being very pragmatic, but also that's become like, there's become, I feel like an association of a very like broy culture surrounding, you know, finance and all of that. Did you feel yourself like self-consciously becoming part of that? Or were you just kind of still along for the ride at that point?
1: I think I did feel some of that cultural pressure, like I needed to be part of it. But I I don't I, I never did. I never kind of fully swallowed the pill. I mean, I, my biological disposition was averse to that culture enough to not be good at it, you know, or not to go all in on it. Um, Just why I ended up as like a clothing buyer, which nobody does at UVA. <laughs> That's how I ended up there.
0: And is that how you started? I guess one of your first uh, projects would be the uh, t-shirt
1: company? Yeah, I mean, that informed it. I, I had some domain expertise then for at least one year, I was only in in the job for a year well, two years, if you count the internship before I, um, you know, before I started the T-shirt company and I felt like, oh, this is easy. I know buyers. I know all these T-shirt makers. I could sell these T-shirts into the time. It was Lord and Taylor up here in New York that I was working for. I can sell it into Lord and Taylor and, um, you know, and off we go. We're going to have a, we're going to have a raging success of a business. Um, But that was, yeah, that, that, that the early years in retail uh, informed my first enterprise for
0: sure. Mm -hmm. And was that just a matter of like you kind of being interested in retail and like feeling like you knew the network or just like this is the, you know, the best opportunity I have right now?
1: Best opportunity, man. Yeah. And best opportunity within the parameters I set. I mean, I gave myself some guardrails. Look, had I gotten some high paying iBanking job, I might have taken it for the same reasons I went to UVA. Like this is the best thing I could get with the best salary. But I didn't get any of those jobs because I performed so horribly in the interviews. But it was definitely much like I performed so well in the interviews for these more people facing marketing gigs. You know, I got a lot of callbacks in that world and that was the best opportunity I could have. They were going to transfer me to New York from their hex division so I could be in New York in the city, which is where I wanted to be.
0: So were you kind of realizing at this point that maybe you kind of had more of the mindset of like an entrepreneur than a company man?
1: I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I just didn't know how to channel it because I had nobody in my life that ran their own business. I actually earlier on, when when someone would say entrepreneur, I re- literally had one image in my head, and it was like the person that ran the bagel store down the street. Like I right. didn't think of, you know, Microsoft, and I just didn't didn't. I don't know why. I mean, I, I until I took an entrepreneurship course at UVA, I didn't. I didn't even. You know, that was my that was my perception. I took entrepreneurship at UVA, and that's when I really opened my eyes to running a business and getting really excited about it. And uh, Elizabeth Thurston, who was the professor at the time, she did a wonderful job of bringing in entrepreneurs of all sorts of different businesses. And hearing their stories was um, you know, pretty inspiring and feeling like you just really start a business in anything. Um, but again when you know not, none of my educational conditioning was going to guide me towards a successful life, uh, career as an entrepreneur i had no one in my family i couldn't cut my teeth on anything so i was going at it um when i started my first business you know i was going at it to, you know like like the hard knock format i mean you just had to learn you just had to learn learn as you were doing it you know build the plane as you fly it type thing i guess is one of the long ways they say I never had the opportunity of working along like working at a startup and seeing what it was like to build a business to get product uh, you know to get the get the market to accept your product and pay for it and then figure out how to scale the marketing efforts there never experienced that and um, learn all of it myself and and then once you're again once you're an entrepreneur and you're doing all this who are you learning from unless you're an, you're amazing at time management and then getting mentors to spend real time with
0: Mm -hmm. So you were getting pretty familiar with like the retail world?
1: Super familiar with the retail world. Yeah, still just know it know it in and out all it's all it's good side and bad side. And,
0: and uh, it's mostly, you know, bad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, recently, I'm sure that in the last, you know, two decades, a lot of turmoil for sure. Uh, Did you were there signs of that? I mean, like, especially with clothes and all of those other businesses, you think of, you know, all of these companies and startups that were springing up? Was there also a sign of like, you know, our industry might be in trouble here or?
1: No, not really. I mean, there was a sign that our, that that, that business was going to be in trouble. The the department store was going to be in trouble because the department <laughs> store was, was just a old model, um, very slow to get on the internet and very like discount heavy, right? I mean, constantly mailing yeah. discount coupons to people in the mail. The writing was on the wall that that model was going to go by the wayside. And, you know, sure enough, Lord and Taylor just sold their flagship Fifth Avenue store, which they've had for 200 years or whatever, to WeWork. (laughs) So there you go.
0: Hey, Max here from the future in the editing bay, just to break up this conversation. So in the first half of the interview, we just uh, learned about how Tower had started, his childhood going to UVA, and of course, his beginnings in the fascinating world of retail, uh, working for companies like Lord & Taylor. And in the second part of this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about the struggle he had in his 20s, where he was disenchanted with his job at Lord & Taylor and starting to join the entrepreneurship world by founding companies like MyWorkster, which was actually a predecessor to Uncube. as an attempt to connect university students to alumni, kind of like a job recruiting network. If that sounds familiar to Uncubed, well, you can see where that's going. So uh, let's get into the second part of the interview. Just wanted to give you, you listeners that quick bit of context. Thanks. So what made you, you know, quit your day job, uh, so to speak, uh, and actually, you know, go full in on this uh, entrepreneurship gig?
1: I was doing both hand hand, together. So between 2006 and 2008, on the side, I was, I was, you know, doing what I could to contribute to this business, which was called my workster at the time. And I was, um, you know, I put all my money into it. So all the money that I had saved, remember, I I think I mentioned earlier, I was living at home for the first 18 months. So you saved quite a bit of money there. And, kind of just dumped it all into that and really wanted to prove myself really wanted to you know prove myself to my co-founder at the time two co-founders and um and it was fun early on you know you go to these interesting uh, events and trade shows and you start showing off the product having meetings you're testing you know whether or not people respond well to it people like the idea but then they don't buy so you're trying to figure out what's going on and all this was happening while i had my full-time job i just had to be really smart with my time and then it was kind of uh it was kind of what made me leave the the full-time job, I mean, look, I always wanted to at that point, once I set my sight on entrepreneurship, I mean, for me, the dream was to ultimately do it full-time, but I couldn't give up my salary. There was no salary to be had in my workster at the time. And so, uh, you know, I kind of just did both, uh, you know, I did all the work that was, you know, that I was responsible for at, at Lord & Taylor. And then when any free time I had, I was working on this and But like I said, I, I had lost motivation at Lord and Taylor because it had no system of meritocracy, which is what motivated me. And so I became basically the equivalent of getting the minimum amount of work done and not worrying too much about anything else. Mm -hmm. People catch on to that pretty quick. They know you're not motivated. I I think I mentioned earlier, I didn't get along well with my boss's boss. Um, And, you know, they kind of wanted me out of her division. And when I refused it, eventually... They came calling uh, about a month after I refused to move out of her division. They, they basically suggested, hey, we've got this great promotional opportunity for you. You can go over to this part of the business it's a promotion It'll be a salary increase. And I turned it down. And he's like, you know, the, at the time my boss said, you know, Tarek, you kind of, you're kind of right in your grave here. So I said, fine. So they gave me severance. I walked out of there. And a uh, great, wonderful day for me because it, was, it felt like these chains that were still on my this kind of professional shackles, if you will, that were still on me, were were uh, removed. But it was definitely a, a time of real insecurity for me because even though I had this very not an amazing severance package, it was like a month. Because I had that, you know, give me a little bit of a, I guess, a cushion. But the, the reality was that I didn't, I hadn't raised money yet for my workster, so that thing wasn't making any money yet. Mm-hmm. And um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd already put all my money into the business, um, but sure enough, one month almost one month to the day of me getting laid off, we raised money from friends of the third co-founder essentially. And we raised about $420,000, I think. And that was just like a really special day because we'd been trying to raise money for the better part of two years. We were speaking to traditional VCs. We were speaking to some of these big, you know, successful people in Long Island that end up being like extremely shady individuals. I mean, we tried with two people that um, basically were sent to prison not long after, <laughs> long after we met with them for mortgage fraud. And, uh, and those are the types of people somehow we were dealing with. And I think that, you know, not, not, maybe not a huge shocker that that was coming out of Long Island at the time. But, um, you know, we because I think, you know, my one co-founder's father owned an insurance company access to like, you know, people that made a ton of money in the insurance space and maybe in mortgage lending. I don't know, I guess, you know, maybe not saying they knew each other, but that was, that was the world that we knew by at the time being in Long Island. And so we were like, well, you know, these high net worth individuals in Long Island want to break into technology. They're going to be all over my workster. And they were, and we had all the, you know, all of these like interesting promises from these people, but we started getting you know, we started getting gun shy because the writing was kind of on the wall with their character. You know, I I remember once we went out to dinner with one of the individuals that said he was going to cut us a quote blank check. And these are just people taking advantage of young 20 year olds starting their own business. That was what ultimately was reality one was a politician. It was interesting. There was definitely some strange corrupt dialogue happening there about how he started his, he was able to start a business and get like a contract because he was a politician, you know, really interesting stuff. And it never, you know, for me, it was always like, good God, who are we, you know, who are we rubbing elbows with now? And I remember we went out to dinner once to talk about the investment and the guy had like an escort, brought like an escort in. Gets off the, He's like, and then while she's there, he's like, it takes a phone call to his wife. And I was like, I this is just absolutely, this is absolutely disgusting. And after that, we all agreed that we're just not taking money from these people. It was just, it was just a very gross. We were not really in a position to negotiate. No one was really throwing money at us at the time. And so we just were kind of worried at that moment when. Uh, Doug, the third partner, who's uh, just a wonderful human being, you know, he went on, you know, went on a limb and asked a couple of really close friends of his. that made a lot of money in interesting businesses, like um, demo, like demolition type businesses. And uh, you know, he brought a group of them together. We presented to them, and then through um, through a group of three separate individuals who run their own businesses, we raised the four hundred twenty thousand dollars. And that was a month after I, I had gotten laid off. So. Um, that was a pretty special day, and, and those people were just great, really, you know, great blue collar people that believed in us as as people, and I would say in the long term we we let them down. Um, you know, but we were, we were naive 20 something year olds, I suppose. But yeah, that's the, you know, again, you're going to see this theme with me of very long winded answers, <laughs> but that's, no, no, that's fine. that is the story. That is the mm-hmm. story that, that got me out of Lord and Taylor and then ultimately on my own. And I've never had a, I've never, you know, I've never worked for anybody since. And that was back in 2008. So it, I think we raised that money, did that deal closed like July 4th of 2008. And then we went out to, you know, waste all that money trying to build a real product. And I say waste because we were outsourcing the tech and the development to a shop that was just um you know again you learned it's totally taking advantage of us we didn't know you know very naive again none of us were technical we would do some of the design i would do some of the i would do the biz dev so we were we were having this thing outsourced we were running like conference to conference university to university doing everything we could to sell it it was a mission earlier i believe but it was a tool that connected university students to their alumni for career opportunities and um it was a good good idea great product and um well great idea can't say great product i'm sure it had loads of Failure
0: points there. but Talk about a tough time also to start a business, uh, 2008. It was 2008.
1: It was a tough time to start a business. That's kind of why we framed it around jobs, because people were desperate for it. And we thought that would be a cool opportunity. And um, But it was very difficult. It was very hard to sell into universities. Um, didn't really know who the buyers were, to be quite honest. Uh, a lot of them were very gun-shy about social networking in general. Okay, there's public information is going to be out there. Um, you know, we were insecure about the tech because it was being outsourced by someone we didn't trust really. And we didn't have a big enough network at the time to, um, you know, to find a satisfactory alternative. And then about call it maybe three months after raising that money, the original founder got like extremely sick, um, almost like death sick. And it, um... You know, and then our relationship changed ever since then. Our relationship, the three of us, you know, it was just, it became like a pretty unhappy environment. And um, and I don't know if, the, if his personality changed, what happened, but it became this like insane micromanagement culture, you know, can do nothing right. Um, changing the product every two weeks, can't settle on something, can't sell, sell something. And it was just, it started becoming a very toxic, environment but we were nervous because we had taken money from these investors and we didn't we were young and didn't really know the best way to handle it doug the the founder i got along well with eventually left because he was older he was much older than us he was in his you know i think mid to late 40s at the time so 20 years older than us and he's like look i can't keep doing this i can't keep making no money and so he went back you know he went back full-time work and so there was just kind of the two of us and those were dark days. Those were dark days, and it lasted. Those dark days lasted, you know, every bit of two and a half, maybe almost three years. To be honest,
0: I guess I'm guessing you could, you know, t- tell there were signs of the end as that was approaching. Yeah, and
1: and um, you know, I had never given up anything in my whole life. I had never quit a damn thing. I'm talking, not even a bad book, like a book I hated. I would, I would just, I would force myself to read it you know, I wouldn't quit a meal when I was stuffed. It was, it was ingrained in me as a young child and it's probably somewhat part of my DNA. Um, so I, I just wouldn't quit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave, which was, would have been the smart move. Um, but leave to what, I don't know. And, you know, again, even though, you know, I have no relationship with this individual to this day and nor would I probably pursue a relationship with this individual, uh, to this day, but, you know, kind of without that fella, I I wouldn't be here. And that's the strange way the world works. Obviously, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't now be running a successful business. Mm -hmm. In December of 2008, um, you know, that recession, the recession really was kind of in full force, our product wasn't really taking off. And that's when we did this job fair for alumni. So we said, okay, all these universities we are trying to sell to, let's, you know, let's do something you all know, you all understand job fairs, what we're going to do is we're going to put all these universities together, we're going to call University of Miami, and then we're going to get Columbia and NYU and Indiana University. And we're going to get all these schools that have never kind of come together for anything and say, we're going to do a, a job fair for the alumni of your universities that live in New York that are recently out of work due to the recession. And we had, and, and are you in? And they all said yes. And then, you know, we were basically wonderful. So they're going to promote it to their alumni. We didn't, that was like the most powerful marketing channel you could have. They were also going to promote it to their company network because they wanted to get their alumni hired. So we ultimately just became the organizers of the event. So we rented space at uh, Baruch College in the city. We had all the tables and chairs set up. We had hundreds of companies and 2,500 alumni showed up. I think we profited $50,000 from it, which was like, hell yeah, we actually made money. It was something we didn't figure out how to do prior to that. I think we had, we had made $4,500 you know, selling the product into one school before then. And then out of that, University of Indiana said, hey, can you do one of these in Chicago? That's where our largest uh, alumni network is. And we said, sure. So that October in 2009, we did one in in Chicago. And then that was where the demand for the offering landed. Can you do one in D.C.? You can do one in L.A. And so we did one at George Washington, D.C. We did one in USC and L.A. And then we started doing these in these different cities. And, um, and it wasn't a big business, um, but it definitely sustained me, my salary and, and my co-founders at the time. The other individual um, I had mentioned, Doug, he left right around that second job fair um, because even though we were making money, we, we were still paying ourselves like 20 grand a year. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I'm not even, That's not even an exaggeration. I think th- the three years after I quit my job, I had made 18,000, 22,000, 25,000. That was, that was like my annual salary those three years in a row. And that's the depressing part. But the good part is that that money did come from, the business that we had right. built. So it's like, wow, we at least were getting something from it. But you know, poor, poor Doug couldn't he just couldn't sustain it. So he left.
0: So it sounds like you were kind of like even though the product was kind of a failure, you had the events thing going and that was actually more successful than you'd even hoped. We were still trying to get the product to take off. So we would
1: demo the product during the job fair. So we were using the job fairs as like a almost like a lead gen to show right. the product. But it really no one really cared about the product. I mean that's what we learned. That's what we that's what I still learn today with Uncubed is that most people will defer to what they know and they know job fairs they don't know social networking they don't know how to promote it they don't know how their effort can lead to roi from from buying it and you have to that's basically when you have a product that has a high educational component you have to educate your buyer before they know they need it that's a very difficult business to build without resources for sure but the job fair no problem Uh, doug had to leave the other co-founder by the way who lived at home still nothing wrong with that of course but he he didn't have to worry about bills or anything of course which is what i had to worry about at the time and my wife now she you know, we were together then i think we, we got married in october that of 20 2008. you know and so i you know i had an apartment i had a wife i was making no money you know it was tough but i was a very loyal committed individual um and then and then you know things just started getting very toxic
0: right but times were just kind of tense because you know like like you just said you weren't you ne- you weren't getting the money you kind of needed at that time in your life
1: it's, it's exactly. Times are just super tense, you know. They're, you know, and and that's a part of the reason that we probably didn't get along because, I, you know, my co-founder at the time. I mean, he, you know, he he had grand visions for a successful business, wasn't happening, and people. It's tough to just be always happy when things are not working. Um, you know, who knows? We might, we if had that thing just totally taken off. Maybe we'd be friends today. Who knows?
0: Hey, it's uh, Max again from the future in the editing bay. So I just want to address what Tarek mentioned with his co founder because their relationship and dynamic is a really interesting part of this story. And we actually talked about it for a while, but I think I'm going to skip over some of that and go to the part of what happened next. Because after my workster failed, Tarek actually partnered with his co founder again for a referral project called Referral.io, which was basically a job referral platform built on really innovative technology. Well, his original co-founder left again. And uh, in this clip that I'm about to play where we're going to cut to, Tarek explains uh, what happened with his co-founder and uh, why he thinks he left the second time and uh, just what happened next at that company, which is kind of what led to him working at Uncubed.
1: So the energy was getting sucked out of the room and then kind of myself and Chris were the ones left standing and saying, okay, um, what the hell are we going to do now? We've, we've got this, you know, this business that's not working anymore. Um, and prior to that, this, this 2011 window was where we were in this big transition out of Referio and into something else. And then Chris and I settled on building, um, something that was close to the referral model. It was, um, uh, we one of our customers, someone that we knew for referio was a company called, uh, God, what was it called? It was part of a, part of a, like a media rollup. And he said, you know, it would be super helpful to me. It would be super helpful to me if you could help us get subscribers to our email through this bucket brigade technology. Like how could you get people to kind of like share like a sweepstakes or something? And it would, you know, and people would sign up and I would, my, and I could get big subscriber jumps. So we, Said if we build it, we pay for it. He said, "Sure." So then we moved away from Referio, started a company called Parrot, and then Parrot was. And this was all the fall, the back half of 2011. We built um, this tool that essentially you could bolt on very easily to your website, and you could you could run like promotions to encourage people to share your site or your link, and it would be like, "Hey, we're going to give away." It had referral components, which was like if you refer someone, you know, you get points, and it, at, once you reach a certain number of points, you get you know, swag or something. And, and so usually attach it to a a campaign. And so somebody would, would do a giveaway. They would email their email list and say, refer your friends to this giveaway. And people would just refer like crazy. And so all these emails would pour in and that was working. And we're like, all right, we're going to build this like, you know, interesting little weird social tool. And we started building that. It was Chris, myself, and one of the remaining engineers of Referio. Anyway, December hits, that engineer is like, I'm out of here. This stinks. I don't want to build this. Goes to Facebook. And then Chris and I were sitting there in December of 2011 going like, you know, do we really want to build this thing? You know, do we want to build this weird social site? And we didn't. Um, But the month prior, I had done a job fair for startups called the Silicon Alley Talent Fair. And it was just a community event for some local startup people so that startups could get a little bit of their brand out there. And you know, and Chris saw this thing and he's like, what do you think about a job business that helps connect startups to talent? Nobody even knows these companies exist yet. And that's the conversation we were having at the end of 2011. And I was in December 2011, I was totally against it. I was like, I don't wanna start a new business. Let's just try to make this stupid parrot thing work. <laughs> and so I went to Brazil um, in January and February of that year and you know i had a call with him while i was in brazil and he's like look i don't think i'm pitching it the right way let me pitch a little bit of a different way and he just presented this concept of being this this cool site that helps expose these really interesting young technology companies that no one's ever heard of before to all these job seekers that don't want traditional careers and it kind of like hit and i was like you know what we can definitely build that business he's like look we'll do these events where we connect start like the event that you just did like let's turn it into something let's connect startups to talent and then let's just see what we can build. Let's just start there and see what we can build. And that was when Uncubed got launched.
0: But now Uncubed is kind of the culmination, like the bigger version of things you've basically been doing for the decade before.
1: It's exactly right. And you know, I, I used to use this analogy of um, you know, when, you, when you build, a you know, you're, let's say you're building your own car from scratch um, and you build that first car and it's, it doesn't work. Like you can't drive it down the road at all. So you're like, all right, got to start again. got to build another car. Um, you're going to take parts from that car with you. You know, maybe you like the doors you built, or maybe you like the wheels. You'll take parts of it, but the engine didn't work. So, um, and that's the way I saw it. Like I, you know, I knew how to run events. I cut my teeth on how to run events. Uh, I, I developed domain expertise in the job space. So you take that knowledge with you, and you kind of create a different model and say, "Well, this model work." And um, and Chris was a writer in school, so that's why like the tech blog thing made sense because I could do the events, he could write, and we had this. Okay, great, we have two founders whose actual skill set can build the business. Whereas when you're building a technology company, you can't. So I could do the events, he could write. And so we had this tech blog, we had a media company, essentially. Yeah. And we were, we were good people to build a media company. But then when we wanted to start building the the software, we were like, we got to do this. And then our the first person to start kind of building it, honestly, I think was a UVA grad named Daniel Wilson, who you might know, or you might've heard of because he helped, mm-hmm. he's running Seaville in Charlottesville now.
0: And Seaville is kind of like a big, I guess, I don't know how big it was then, but like the entrepreneurship thing at UVA, Um, because before that, I think it was kind of non-existent. And what Daniel and other people, you know, at Hacksville have done is really neat to kind of like get students involved in that before they even uh, graduate.
1: Yeah, there was nothing there. And, you know, I even tried getting the McIntyre School to do some cool um, partnerships with the engineering school where you would partner these kind of business-minded folks with the engineers and try to like build product at University of Virginia. And my, the response I got from McIntyre was, well, we're going to have to pay for it all. So we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And that was just in a dialogue I had with the school. I, I had developed a decent reputation with McIntyre at that point because I had built a business. And even though it was young, you know I think the school likes to build relationships with those professionals. yeah And, uh, and that was a disappointing response. And then when they wanted to do the trip, the school said they wouldn't fund it. And I said, well, then tell everybody to buy it themselves. You know, people really care about their career. Tell them to buy their own bus ticket up. I'll take care of the startups myself. You guys just find a place to crash and get your bus ticket. And so I think Kyle really was able to motivate people to do it. And once he got everybody to do it, a guy named Mark Gallant, which is now the, I think the Entrepreneurship Center is named after him, got wind of it. And he's like, these kids are not paying for themselves. I'll foot the bill. So he paid for them all to come up and he took everybody out to dinner and he just did a really good job. And I think that's when the spark really, the entrepreneurship spark, like really took off was probably that trip surely played a role in it, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, Spencer Ingram started this Hack Sebel thing at UVA. And, you know, he's the one that really got that thing started down there. And, and you know, Dan- Daniel's run with it.
0: When you were, at you know, UVA, you know, you didn't have that kind of stuff. Like there was just a path you followed, especially at McIntyre. Mm-hmm. And now there are actually, you know, some entrepreneurship resources for people. I think if UVA
1: had it their way, they wouldn't They wouldn't even have the entrepreneurship department. Um, that was the vibe we always got. Not so it's like a community. student thing. Yeah, it, it, they had no choice because it was ha- it was going to steamroll them over because students were making it happen. I think even Alexis Ohanian had commented on that, which
0: is like UVA didn't help. Who, just for anyone who might not know, uh, Reddit co-founder,
1: fact, co-founder of Reddit. he was a year younger than me at UVA, and um, I think he was also in McIntyre, if I'm not mistaken. But he, you know, he buddied up with his. Steve Huffman Hoffman or Huffman at uh, who is an engineer in the engineering school and they built Reddit go figure right so that 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 partnership makes sense.
0: And it's just an irony because I mean like I'm sure UVA like I mean they they're doing this now too obviously, but before they were touting like oh reddit you know was made at UVA, but not addressing the fact that like almost none of that had to do with their resources because at the time they had none
1: that the, all they had was the inspiration from a guy named Mark White um, who was a professor that I think helped inspire. Alexis, but the, the 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 school certainly didn't. And I mean, years after Reddit was huge. Nobody at UVA even knew the founder went to UVA, the founders, because the school wasn't even promoting it. Mm-hmm. Because it was kind of antithesis to their send everybody into baking and consulting. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're like, who are the most famous people that went to UVA? I mean, Alexis's name wasn't even, you know, hatched, even though Reddit was already so big
0: only that now that, you know, now everybody knows, of course. Right. Hindsight 2020 and UVA is a little more receptive to it, but yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. You wouldn't have even known Max, but I mean, nobody knew Alexis. went. No one knew the founder of Reddit was a UVA grad for way longer <laughs> than it should have gone on. And, um, and I had a lot of resentment for UVA too because when I was building my work store, I was, you know, it was a, it was a college, it was a business selling into colleges and I was desperate to get anyone from the alumni office to speak to me and nobody would take my call. They wouldn't even like, say no to me. They just wouldn't even call me back. And so I went into the and I remember I went into the LinkedIn shared group on for UVA and I said, Hey everybody. I think I got I think McIntyre responded and said, Okay, yeah, let's see, you know, let's let's talk about it and said, you know, let's see what this is about. And so I immediately went into the group and said, Hey everybody, McIntyre is going to consider using this site. Can you jump on and use it and give feedback? And then I got a and then I got an email from I think the head of the Alumni Association saying, Don't post that don't post that in our LinkedIn group. And then I wrote him a very long email and said, you know, this is one of the most disappointing experiences of my life that not only have I tried reaching out to the UVA alumni association multiple times, um, without a response, but the one time you decide to talk to me, it's to tell me not to, not to do the exact thing that, you know, you would want (laughs) that you should be advising me to do, which is asking for feedback from the community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was a very disappointing. It was very disappointing for me. And I built up huge resentment to UVA, which is part of the reason to this day, I still won't donate to them. Even though I, I hold UVA near and dear to my heart, I won't donate to the school because of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, because during that time I was getting letter after letter to donate to the alumni association. So my, so my association with that is so powerful now, which is that, you know, it's just too powerful. I, it's going to take a little bit to, to deconstruct that. Bad call on their part. <laughs> Really bad call. Yeah. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, Alexis for a long time felt the same way. And yeah. it's like, you don't, you know, and then, but again, they couldn't, they couldn't ab- avoid it any longer. Because again, you had these banks and consulting firms, you know, they were, they, they see, this is, man, we were talking about mechanisms earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, the bankings and the consulting, the, these companies were spending a ton of money to access talent at UVA. So if these kids were going to start their own company, that was going to be bad to the existing business model of University of Virginia.
0: Oh yeah. It's like protect the well.
1: It's exactly right. You gotta protect the well. And so it was it was only when you couldn't stop it anymore that they said, okay, we'll invest in this. And Mark Lantz said, I'm gonna cut a check, you know, but I, I will only cut a check if you do a school. I'm I've got all I've got millions of dollars to give UVA, but I will only give it to you if you start an entrepreneurship program. And even he got real pushback from you know, the Dean of the McIntyre school and others, they just didn't really want to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then even when they did it and they finally put a, a gentleman who I adore, Dave tuvey I love him. Before knowing Dave, I was so disappointed because they were only considering somebody that had a doctorate degree. And it's like, what entrepreneur has a doctorate degree?
0: <laughs> you know, it's like, are you serious? You can't be out there working if you're in yeah, academia like that. Yeah, if You're
1: in academia. I mean, how are you going to have someone that's a total academic run program and they found this unicorn in Dave Tooby that, that, uh, um, look, this is, these are the blows on the chin that you get, you know, you like, I'm reading this great book on leadership now, and this is how Lincoln and Roosevelt and others ultimately had to get their way is you think about net positive. You don't think about Mm -hmm. winning everything. So it's like, okay, the school doesn't want entrepreneurship.
0: Like how can we, How can we make this work? How can you change the status quo? Because like, it's not going to come to you. You have to change it.
1: it. And then you have to be able to understand what they want, give them something that they want so that you get a little bit of what you're trying to do. And then you keep inching towards things until now, UVA is probably going to start hatching some of the most outstanding entrepreneurs on earth. Um, They built a data science school now. It's like, this is great. Things are happening. Things are moving. And, you know, and that's, that's something that anybody that participated in UVA's early entrepreneurship day should be very proud of.
0: Yeah. And so just like wrapping up, you know, with where you are on cube now and also just where the UVA entrepreneurship community is at, where do you feel it's going like near future? How do you feel about it?
1: I mean, I think, I think there's, you know, I, I think, um, it needs to mature. I think entrepreneurship always starts with just like an unbelievable amount of excitement. Um, and then reality kicks in that it's not really easy and that most people that go out to start something are going to fail. Uh, and, uh, I hate using that word because, um, Fail, but with great knowledge. You know, you 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 you're, you're. Either, you're, you're, in, you're vi- I'll say this: most people that go out to start their business, the vision for what it will become will not happen. The learnings you take, how it leads to new businesses, or that it becomes a business, just not what you expect. These things will happen, but most the vision won't materialize. Some will have to go get real jobs. Um, But I think entrepreneurship is maturing right now. I think there's actually now starting to be a little bit of a reverse trend, to be quite honest, because of the toxicity coming out of the very privileged technology entrepreneurship community, where most entrepreneurship is now associated with the tech world.
0: Yeah, which it has, you know, like you just said, kind of a stain on itself at
1: the moment. It now has a stain on itself, the way banking developed a stain on itself over time. And now you can't go around and say you're in tech and get the same response you did five, six years ago, where people were like, oh, what are you building? That's so interesting. Now they're
0: like, ugh. Are you getting sued by the government? Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And people are just like, oh, I'm just another privileged tech person. Like, I really hesitate to, t- often, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I, I try to have, I try to be zen enough not to care that much about what people think, but I often tell people I run a soccer league, you know, because <laughs> I do run a soccer league, but I don't love having the tech conversation with people too often.
0: Yeah. And we've been talking about work for an hour and I just want to end on a note of play. And um, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, NYC footy. Uh, so what are you doing with that?
1: Yeah. So this is, um, I honestly consider this like almost the great privilege of my life to date beyond my, you know, my, my wife and my daughter and well, gosh, all the other great privileges of life for crying out loud, but I'd say my great professional privilege is started a soccer league on the side the same time we started on Cube. So I was in a, I, I'm not a particularly amazing soccer player. Um, I played in high school, didn't play again until I was 25 when I was on a free agent team in the city, played for about f- f- five years in the city with this team that we then became friends with and you know i just saw huge especially because now i've been conditioned in the tech world i'm like my god there's a huge opportunity to like level up the experience of the soccer league the websites all suck no one's taking pictures there's no all the jerseys are like these thick gildan t-shirts yeah the balls are waterlogged like wow what you know the entrepreneur brain kicked off and it's like let's start our own league you know gang and we don't have to pay for soccer anymore because we can just start our own league and play in it and that was the original idea and so we started the league in the summer of 2011 in um, Brooklyn. We thought we'd get teams pretty easily. Didn't happen. So we like advertised in L magazine and all these other things, eventually scraped like six teams together. I had to ask some favors for people to form teams. And, and then, that, you know, the first couple of seasons were just like six or eight teams and it was just a lot of fun. And, um, but we started taking like these, you know, we had these beautiful jerseys that we had made. We got local sponsors, local bars that, print their, you know, their, we were trying to create, we were trying to just create this like professional experience, but for the recreational league, it was only co-ed. So as we are today, we are only co-ed. Mm-hmm. We kept stats early on, you know, gold, you know, golden boot. We had, you know, again, we took these professional, we had a professional photographer come and take team photos. And over time, like these team photos were hitting the web because everyone took funny team photos, right? So they'd be on social, people would be sharing them like crazy. More teams were knocking on the door. We had to go get another permit. We finally got another permit. Um, the league was growing. Then we unlocked this huge permit for us in, in Brooklyn. And um, this season, that same field is fielding forty-five teams. And now, you know, you flash forward to two thousand nineteen, and you know we have this season. I think one hundred and two teams.
0: And that's like over a thousand people in your league, or yeah, that's fifteen hundred people are playing now
1: this season alone. Um, in aggregate, we have over seven thousand players. Just grown so, and continues to grow. In fact, summer is now going to be bigger than spring. Every season gets bigger, and and that's just the that's and that that there's like no that's there's no tech there that's just all mm-hmm. that's just all creating a great you know in-person experience for people and that's just fun for you right and that's just a lot of fun for me yeah and i think for me that's you know it was for us this city did not need another soccer league when we came in but we just you know we created a lot of fun we kicked people out that are bad for the culture like if people are overly aggressive or are yelling or saying inappropriate things. They get a few strikes. If they keep doing it, their character's not going to change. We're like, go find another league. Goodbye. And so what you end up shaping this very fun, respectful atmosphere. It's always co-ed, so it's got this social undertone. Now we're sponsored by Puma, so all the kits are Puma. Famous people playing it. Jay Williams, you might know, who's, you know of Duke fame, who does all the broadcasting for him. He is, his wife is on my soccer team, so he comes and plays with us sometimes. We've got a lot of tech founders in the league as well. I've played over time. Founder of Venmo, founder of Oscar Health, founder of SeatGeek. On, CBX on my team as an example right so there's like
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know there's now you've got now i'm able to mix the tech world a little bit
0: with the sport world just like you're bringing the tech to the sport world you're also bringing the sport and the fun to the tech world
1: exactly and 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 that that's when my family and friends and even myself started realizing that that is actually my personal gift it mm-hmm. is 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 the kind of bringing together the community concept And so Focused on that. I have been my whole life. That's why events have always been. I was a social chair at McIntyre School of Commerce. I was a social chair at my fraternity. Like this has always been in my DNA. So putting me behind a machine and doing like a tech company all day long is not my gift. That's not me, you know, putting my best skill set, the gift that I, I was blessed with to the world. And now we've got this wonderful site on Cube that has a studio, a lot of in-person stuff, a lot of like creating, you know, visual elements. We do this, you know, we still do a conference every year called HR on Cube. It's this amazing interactive conference for HR and talent professionals. So we still are always, you know, with the community, we do these breakfasts every single month or every other month for HR people. So that that bringing together thing is in my DNA for sure. And, uh, you know, the soccer league, I think, is like the epitome of combining my knowledge and... And my and what I love to do with my skill set, and that's why that soccer league is probably recognized as the best league in the city, because those two things are together. There's a lot of people running the so- soccer leagues in the city solely because they see a business opportunity. There's other people that are running soccer leagues in the city, and all they want to do is play in it. But when you combine like wanting to, you know, bring more and more people together with something that you love and and an attention to detail, you you know, you put certain things, all those things combined it's going to be tough to compete with with any somebody that can do that
0: thank you so much for listening and thank you again to tarik for the interview if you're curious about uncubed nyc footy or any of the other projects mentioned in this interview well there'll be links to those in the show notes this has been our second episode and i'd like to thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show it'd be a huge deal if you could rate and review us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you download the show. And you can also subscribe in your podcast app of choice to keep getting future episodes and stories of innovative UVA students, who shoulders will return next month with another guest. Once more, you're awesome for listening. Have a nice warm May. We'll catch you again with our next episode in June. Enjoy the start of the summer. Peace.